Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England. Episode 230, The Execution of Anne Boleyn. Just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, we have a series of podcasts out now celebrating the Reformation. How appropriate is that, given that the great man posted his 95 theses on the... Well, he posted them somewhere pretty close to exactly 500 years ago. So just search for the Agora Podcast Network through your normal podcastery doobery thing. Now then, before I go on about the smorgasbord of delights and all that, you should know that I have now posted a second quiz on the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Seriously, no easier than the first. And everyone except Tiffany, Manny, Michelle and Mimi were really pretty rubbish. Sorry to say that, but you know... We're all about truth, light and justice here on the History of England, not about sugaring pills. So, I challenge you to have a go at the second quiz, all about Queen Anne. You might want to wait until the end of this week's episodes, possibly. And then, this week, we have two things going on. For everyone in the world, we have today's episode on the dramatic events of 1535 and 36, and then, incredibly, yes, incredibly, there's more. No, no, don't thank me. In three days' time, we have Claire Ridgway, creator of the really rather astounding Anne Boleyn Files website and multiple books on Anne and the Tudors. Claire is going to talk about who killed Anne Boleyn. Why was Anne executed? What are the theories? Was she the victim of political infighting? Or did Henry decide he just wanted shot of her? Or was she, in fact, guilty as charged? And look, Claire should know. She's written a book on the subject called The Fall of Anne Boleyn which is actually one of the prizes for the Scandal of Christendom poll, which starts next weekend, wherein we consider our debating question. So that's all great. But then this week, we have a second thing for members only. If you are a member, you get to have a vote on why Anne was executed. This is not, repeat, not the Scandal of Christendom vote, but a special vote just for members. 
You members get an extra episode today from little old me. You then wait for Claire's episode, I advise. And you can then vote for why you think Anne was executed and get added into the Who Killed Anne Boleyn prize draw. The prize on offer is from her daughter, actually, Queen Elizabeth. Isn't that nice of her? Well, actually, it was offered by Simon Hall of Hall's Hammered Coins, our sponsor. And it's an original Elizabeth I silver half groat. Look me in the eye and tell me that's not cool. Anyway, so if you're a member, log in, go to the podcast post and you can vote there. I am aware, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm doing far too many polls at the same time and you'll all get confused, irritated or probably both. Sorry, it's a personal character flaw. I overcomplicate things. But to repeat, this week, members only poll on who killed Anne Boleyn. Next week, another episode from me and the scandal of Christendom poll for everyone. Elementary, my dear Watson. Enough, on with the story. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. The birth of Elizabeth left Anne still vulnerable, still under pressure. But as Henry said at the time, we're still young, boys will follow. Although Henry would have exploded at the mere suggestion, Henry was almost certainly part of the problem in the child production department. He was just beginning to get stout and develop recurring health problems. He'd had a jousting accident in 1528, which gave him a recurring leg ulcer, for example. And look at his record with his wives and mistresses, a couple of whom, Mary Boleyn and Catherine Parr, get pregnant as soon as they hook up with somebody else. But hey, none of that mattered. Anne would get the blame. But hallelujah, by the start of 1534, Anne was pregnant once more, and everything was smiles and happiness, and by April, Anne was clearly showing hurrah. And then, as so often in this story, disaster struck and Anne miscarried. The horror was kept secret for a while, helped by the summer progress, and so it wasn't until September that folks like Chapuis realised what had happened, and the floodgates of worry were open once again. Rumours appear from this time of tiffs and quarrels between Henry and Anne, but it's really difficult. They're all from Chapuis, and given that he's absolutely desperate for Catherine and Mary to be reinstated, even in his most honest moments, he must have been looking out for any encouraging signs. In September, there were rumours of Henry having an affair with a maid of honour, and a famous exchange took place. Anne was livid, and she took Henry to task. Henry flared back that she had good reason to be content with what he had done for her. They would not do it again, if he was starting afresh, that she should remember where she had come from. Oh, that's nasty. You can see why the situation is so difficult. Anne's legitimacy is still at question. She's not a royal Spanish blood like Catherine, and therefore bringing that external legitimacy to Henry's reign. Until she has a male child, she's not doing her job at all and supporting the monarchy. And hey, as far as Henry's concerned, he's simply doing what he's always done. Catherine didn't make a fuss when he took a mistress. Why should Anne? The worry in the background about the royal heir poisoned everything. But some of these concerns evaporated in the summer progress of 1535. With hindsight, the progress was given special significance by a visit they made to Wolf Hall, the home of the Seymours. Maybe it was here that Henry got the hots for Jane Seymour. Such evidence as there is, though, suggests that said hots only began to appear in 1536. And there's no reason to suppose there was therefore any great significance in the Wolf Hall visit in 1535, except the normal visit to a family with growing influence at court. And in fact, by the time they were back at court, 
Anne was pregnant again. She needed the hope that this news brought, because the rumbling of discontent amongst the public would not go away. During the summer, there had been a public demonstration against Anne in support of Mary by London women. It often seemed to be the women that objected most to Anne at the time. So on one occasion, a mob of women had almost caught her at York Place and she'd had to flee by boat. On this occasion, though, most worryingly, the demonstration might have been supported by women of the royal household. Among those, again, might have been one Jane Parker, otherwise known as Lady Rochford, wife of Brother George Boleyn. Good Lord, nothing like family loyalty, eh? It is a very much disputed claim, historians aren't sure. At the same time, of course, discontent was growing over the religious changes. England was hit by plague, otherwise known as mm, God's judgment. Francis I fell badly ill in France and Henry panicked. He was genuinely scared of isolation in Europe and Francis was his only friend. Unknown to Henry, Catherine had by now decided bottoms to Whiffley loyalty and all that jazz and had written to Charles, telling him to intervene militarily. Seriously, tension, 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 squeaky door, blackboard and fingernails, level of tension. Oh dear. And then, on the 7th of January 1536, Catherine died at Kimbolton Castle, where she'd been since May 1534. She'd been fighting illness for some time, still separated from her daughter, still refusing to yield. Now, Chapuis may get painted as the villain of the piece from Anne's perspective, but as a friend to Catherine and Mary, you really have to hand it to him. Constantly badgering Henry, constantly trying to visit Catherine to give her moral support. On one occasion, he was specifically forbidden to visit Catherine, but stubbornly got as close as he could to her house and paraded her horses across the house until she waved to him to say that she was OK. But now, finally, Catherine's struggle was over and to the end she maintained, even in the face of what she would have seen as immortal peril of her soul, if she said the wrong thing, that she was Henry's rightful wife and had not had sex with Arthur. At the post-mortem, her heart turned out to be blackened, which of course wouldn't have surprised Henry at all, but Chapuis, of course, immediately started blathering that the Queen had been poisoned. Clearly, she had been no such thing. Now, you might imagine that the death of an ex-queen would have been received at court with propriety and mourning, even if it was a little hypocritical. Never speak ill of the dead and all that sort of thing. That folks would have talked about her good points at that opportunity. You know, well, she was fun. Well, not exactly fun, but she was very Spanish. That's right, she was very Spanish. But you would be wrong to so think. Nope, there was a riotous lift in tension. Wiltshire was heard to remark that he wished Mary had joined her, which is just mean. Henry wore gorgeous yellow in celebration which I guess you could say was a little disrespectful. I think one author tried to dig something out about yellow being the colour of mourning in Spain, which is a nice try. Sadly turned out not to be true, so no cigar. There are other contemporaries who suggest both Henry and Anne dressed in yellow. There's a good article on the Anne Boleyn files, actually. Plus, he and Anne were notably merry and up for a party. Henry laughed and walked around with little Elizabeth in his arms, showing her to everyone while the ladies of the court danced. Once again, everything was back in place. Dead ex-wife, pregnant new wife, Banzai. One fly in the ointment was that Henry had a serious jousting accident right now. He had a bad fall from his horse, possibly trapped by the horse, and he was out cold for two full hours. The whole court, Anne included, was in a complete panic. But this was not Henry's time, and he recovered. 
Having said that, everything could not be described as being in the tickety-boo category, not by a long chalk. Henry's eyes were wandering in a way that Henry's eyes did wander from time to time. It appears he now had an object of desire at court other than his wife Anne. This is one as mentioned, Jane Seymour, the Lady of Wolf Hall. Jane appears to have been the pliant tool of her family in a way that Anne would never have allowed herself to be. It doesn't appear to have been looks that had attracted Henry, though who knows? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as my grandmother would have said, usually a couple of nanoseconds before giving me a roasting for transgression. Jane was described as of middle height, pale complexion. She was most unlike Anne. Not that bright, rather self-effacing, no great mistress of the courtly wit and banter required to cut yourself a reputation at court. But nonetheless, she caught Henry's eye. And the assumption is, and it does feel like a reasonable assumption, though it's impossible to say into people's hearts, that Henry was attracted precisely because she was the opposite of Anne. Unlike Anne, she promised a quiet life. While Henry was salivating over Jane, her dad, John Seymour, was dribbling in the background along with his sons, Edward and Thomas. Here was the Seymour family's big chance. They were a pretty minor family. Jane could bring them riches. Jane could bring them glory. And they had the Anne Boleyn playbook. Go for the big prize. We are not at home to Mr Nookie, or indeed to Mrs Slap and Tickle. It's marriage or nout. It's not so much that Jane was setting her cap at Henry. It was more that her entire family were chucking a blizzard of bonnets at the man that would have made even the Duke of Albany envious. And then, enter the same villain we've seen so many times before. You know, the guy dressed in black, skull-like face, scythe slung over one shoulder. And on the 29th of January 1536, Anne lost another child. Whether Henry or Anne learned from history is irrelevant, because they're both being forced to relive it. Reports from the time described the miscarried baby as having the shape of a man-child. Reports decades later invented the idea of a deformed foetus, which we're going to ignore, as do most historians, as a bit of later propaganda to paint Anne as a witch. Henry looked at Anne. Anne looked at Henry. I would guess, and guess it is, that Henry was not just upset for the loss of his child. Every fear was resurfacing in his mind about being in a marriage condemned by God, condemned to leaving his kingdom with no male heir and a disputed succession. I see that God will not give me male children, he said, turned his back, started to walk off. When you're up, I'll speak to you, he said. He didn't get far. In her distress, Anne lashed out too. She'd lost the baby because she'd been so worried about his fall in the joust. And then there was this bit of fluff, this fancy woman he'd been gawping at. All this pain and distress you put me through has made me lose my baby. Henry was not good at criticism, constructive or otherwise. Personal development plans and performance improvement plans were not in his management lexicon. He was upset. Now, Most observers at court would have told Anne to ignore his dalliance with another woman. There had been examples before, there would be again. They come, they go. But again, Anne's position was uniquely vulnerable, for all the reasons we've just related. Plus, actually, the death of Catherine had really not improved things, however much Anne and Henry might have celebrated. Or at least, it hadn't improved things for Anne and little Elizabeth. Because actually... Mary was more of a problem than she and Catherine had been together. Catherine 
had really been a busted flush when it came to the Aragonese faction at court, since it was obvious to everyone except Chapuis there was no way she was making a comeback. But Mary? Well, there's a legal thing called good faith in the whole legitimacy bastardy thing. Bone fidem parentum in Latin, and we like a little Latin, good faith of the parents. What this meant was this. Pretty clearly, even if the marriage between Henry and Catherine hadn't been good as Henry asserted, at the time they got married, they both thought it was good. And this meant that Mary was actually legitimate in the eyes of the law under the demands of bone fidem parentum. Now that Catherine was gone, the Aragonese faction could really get behind Mary as Henry's heir with no problem. And the Conservatives and Aragonese could do so without a hint of disloyalty to Henry himself should he decide to dump Anne. Around corners of the court, there was a general rubbing of hands, sharpening of knives, twirling of moustaches. But how to get rid of Anne? The ideas knocking around were not good. Getting Henry to get rid of Anne by declaring his last marriage as well as his first marriage illegitimate, well, that was a tall order. It was going to make Henry look like a real Charlie. But the likes of Nicholas Carew and Exeter continued to twizzle their whiskers and think hard. Meanwhile, Jane Seymour played up and played the game like a gooden. At the end of March 1536, there was a super famous incident where Henry sent Jane a purse and a letter. Craftily, Jane kissed it and sent it back, saying she couldn't possibly tarnish her good name unless the king happened to have found her a good husband. You know, good husband, really good husband. Maybe crown on him, you know. You want to put a ring on it? Well, you know, I paraphrase. Anywho, things got back to normal around court though it's true to say that there were some disappointments in the Berlin corner, some interesting disappointments, actually. Brother George was up for election to the Noble Order of the Garter. 24 blokes, most prestigious men's club in history. There were a few other names in the bonnet, but, you know, George, Queen's brother and all, a shoe-in, surely, slam dunk, they think it's all over, that sort of thing. Well, blow me down and smear me in cooking oil if Nicholas Carew didn't go and get the gig. Now that's one in the eye for the Berlins. In the words of Bananarama, somebody's really saying something. Still, it has to be said that Wiltshire and Georgie Porgy did win some honours and grants around the same time. So you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. There was then a nasty incident with Anne's almoner, John Skip. A man reputed to be a religious reformer and evangelical. In front of the king and the court, he preached a sermon which was most ill-advised. Despite the fact that Skip was supposed to be a reformer, much of the sermon actually handed out a kicking, well, handed out a footing, to folks who over-criticised the church, which is an interesting thing we'll discuss next week. But that's not the bad thing. The real point was his preaching about King Ahasuerosh, the Old Testament king who'd been moved by his evil counsellor Haman to destroy the Jews, and about his good queen Esther who came to save them. It became clear that John Skip was equating Henry with a Hushverosh and Thomas Cromwell was being equated with the evil Haman. Esther was probably the lovely Anne, of course. So what's that all about? John Skip, almoner, was closely questioned by royal chaplains and wrists were soundly slapped. Odd, especially since he was Anne's almoner. You'd have thought he'd have checked his sermon 
before having a hack at Anne's supposed ally, Cromwell, and her husband, the King. Anyway, life went on, and Henry continued to press the Emperor to recognise Anne and gain international acceptance for his marriage, especially now that Catherine was gone. And it has to be said that Charles was showing willing for a rapprochement now that some of the awkwardness was out of the way, i.e. Catherine. Good golly, aren't men fickle? In April, there was what was thought to be a sneaky victory over Chapuis at court. Basically, George Boleyn managed to manoeuvre Chapuis so that he suddenly came face to face with his bête noire, the one he called the lady on good days, the concubine and the whore on every other day. Anne acknowledged him. Chapuis could do no other than respond and acknowledge her. Yes, high five, slam dunk, funny little wiggly things with hands up and down. Anyway, we come to the glorious May Day jousts of 1536, an annual event. The opportunity for Tudor display and oppressograms of the highest order. They were held at Greenwich. Henry and Anne sat together. Henry, for once, was not riding. Given his recent accident, it was felt to be prudent to hold back a little for a while. Henry was all smiles, all solicitude towards his beloved wife, as he had referred to her very recently in his letter to Charles V. During one of the tourneys, Henry Norris's horse would not charge. Now, we have not mentioned Henry Norris, I don't think. Henry Norris was both an Anne Boleyn fan and supporter at court, and was a man intimately acquainted with her husband's bottom. Henry Norris was the current groom of the stool, a role we have marvelled and giggled at together before. The last groom of the stool, William Compton, had cleaned his last royal backside back in 1528. Since then, it had been Norris who'd had the privilege. As was very much the case with someone who got so close to the business end, this was a strong relationship built on trust and even friendship. Norris was in constant attendance on the king and was the man most likely to be his confidant. Anyway, seeing Norris's problems, Henry graciously lent him his own horse, and matters proceeded. At the end of the joust, though, there was some oddness. Henry left rather quickly and set off to Westminster with Henry Norris, as it happens, and was seen to be questioning him rather closely and insistently on the way. Still, never mind. Anne went back to her apartments at Greenwich as per normal. No big. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following morning, Anne was up and watching a game of tennis. She'd put a bet on the game. The Tudors were inveterate gamblers, and it was looking good. But then a strange message arrived. She was summoned. Summoned to meet with members of the King's Council, a special commission. This was odd. Most unusual, in fact. I suspect Anne would have stood on her dignity and imperiously demanded to know why, and they should wait until she was good and ready. But there was to be no delay. She must come, and she must come now. Even worse was how she was treated when she got in there, and their questioning. In Anne's own words later, she was cruelly handled by her uncle and others of the council. A bombshell had exploded. To her horror, Anne realised she was being accused of adultery. Adulter what? 
and gave her interrogators sufficient laudy, but Uncle Norfolk was unimpressed and just submitted her to a round of English tutting. The English love tutting. It has just the right kind of passive aggression that's perfectly designed for our cultural icon, the Q. Anyway, by two that afternoon, Anne was seized and taken to the tower. There she was greeted by William Kingston, who held the most important office in the immortal game of Kingmaker, Constable of the Tower of London. Her jailer, essentially. Here we go. Mr Kingston, should I go into a dungeon? No, madam. You should go into your lodging that you lay in at your coronation. It is too good for me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Master Kingston, shall I die without justice? Poorest subject the king hath, hath justice. Now, Izzy and I cut out any attempt to include the Anne laughing bit that is recorded by Kingston in his record of this conversation. We did that because our acting skills are really not up to it. But then I invented a more respectable answer to protect our respective egos. Because how Anne laughed is a matter of interpretation. Was it the hysterical laughter of fear? Or the hysterical laughter of guilt? Or the ironic laughter of the sophisticate who knew exactly what was going on? Anne was to discover later that hers had not been the only arrest. The night before, her court musician and lutenist, a young man called Mark Smeaton, had been arrested and closely questioned at Thomas Cromwell's house. How close is again up for debate. Does close mean torture? Surely the lovely Mark Rylance would never tolerate such a thing. The following morning, her brother George had been arrested, as had Henry Norris. More arrests would follow. Thomas Wyatt, her supposed lover or flirt from her early days at court. Francis Weston, a young rake at court. William Brereton, Richard Page. Of these, only Wyatt and Page were quickly released. Even Vicar of Hell Francis Bryan was interrogated by Cromwell, but not imprisoned. Seriously, the land had slid, and some of the finest were caught in the mud. What on earth had happened? Well, there's a question for you. What was it exactly that led to Anne to this point? If you realised just how complicated that question was, you might not have asked it, but instead wandered by, whistling with studied and determined nonchalance as you went. Well, let us come to that question another time and we can review what was going on. But there are three principal theories, apart from the one that Anne was a lizard from outer space. Number one is that Thomas Cromwell took her down because Henry just didn't like her anymore. He'd found a new fish to fry in Jane Seymour, so Henry told him to get rid of her. Thomas? Yes, sire? Execute the wife, would you? Certainly, sir. Coming right up, sir. Number two is that Thomas Cromwell took her down because of factional infighting. She had fallen out with Cromers over foreign policy and with the Aragonese faction because, well, because they hated her and wanted to see her burn. Number three is that Thomas Cromwell took her down because she was guilty. Claire will talk more during the week on this in her podcast and Odden members, download your Shedcast and you can hear me give the idea a hack too. For here, let us concentrate on what happened. It has to be said that in this situation Anne doesn't help herself. Everyone whom she trusted was removed from her side and four chaperones placed with her, spies of Cromwell, who told him everything. But nonetheless, she talked. She worried. Who was going to say what? How would things look? We also have reports from the jailer William Kingston about what she says and does, and unsurprisingly, she's up and she's down, she's hot and she's cold. 
because one thing had to be most unlikely as far as Anne could see. Surely there was no way on earth she could be executed. That could never happen. Certainly it had never happened before, not to a Queen of England. Eleanor of Aquitaine, she had incited her sons to rebel against her husband, the king, tried to have him killed. She was simply locked up in a castle. Isabella of France, she got it on with a man who then had her husband, Edward II, killed. Nobody touched the hair on her head. But you never know. And I mean, this is Henry. Now look, we know what happens. Back then, Anne would have speculated about all manner of possible outcomes. It's a situation that might indeed lead to the odd, I don't know, mood swing or two. While Anne speculated, Cromwell's best evidence was from the musician Mark Smeaton. He'd been interrogated, possibly racked, and he'd confessed to having sex with Anne. Smeaton is a rather sad and pathetic character, to be honest. There is an often told story of an exchange between him and Anne, which gives a little insight to both, and which supports the suggestion that Smeaton did indeed carry a flame for his mistress. So, picture the scene. Mark was there, standing in the round window at Anne's presence chamber, when Anne came upon him. Why are you so sad? It's no matter. You may not look to have me speak to you as I should do to a noble man, because ye be an inferior person. No, no, a look sufficeth me, and thus fare thee well. Now, to our modern ear, this sounds thoroughly nasty, doesn't it, on Anne's part? In fact, it's a little more subtle than that. Mark Smeaton was trying to draw Anne into a flirtatious conversation in the courtly style to get her to ask him why he was feeling sad and then he could probably tell her with some problem of love and so on. Anne knew what he was about and she avoided the problem. Other snippets, meanwhile, had also emerged. So the Countess of Worcester had let slip her opinion that Anne was guilty of fast living. Many years later, Jane Rochford... George Boleyn's wife, was to be accused by George Wyatt of being, quote, that wicked wife, accuser of her own husband, even to the seeking of his own blood. The story goes that hurt by her husband's preference for his sister's company and hatred of his wife Jane, Lady Rochford shopped Anne and accused her and her brother of incest. There are no contemporary reports that she did anything of the sort, it has to be said. As for the rest of the accused, they all held firm. Norris had held firm while being quizzed by Henry on the ride home from the joust. Nobody else cracked, just Smeaton. However, the one story that probably added most credibility to the whole story was this exchange between Anne and Henry Norris, where for once Anne's courtly radar deserted her. Why do you not go through with your marriage to Madge? Madam, I would tarry a while. You look for dead men's shoes. For if aught should come to the king but good, you would look to have me. If I should have any such thought, I would my head were off. Here Anne had blown it, and the exchange probably got round court and possibly back to Cromwell's ears. Anne had made the terrible mistake of envisaging the death of the king, plus, of course, of suggesting that Norris was waiting for the king to die so that he could step into his shoes. Anne knew she'd blown it. She was so panicked... She even got Norris to go straightway to John Skip and swear that she was a good woman. Because this was stepping over the line of courtly exchanges. In a separate incident, Francis Weston, also the young rake, had managed to trick Anne into allowing him to declare his passion for her. It's all pretty flimsy. But as far as Cromwell was concerned, it was enough. Sure, it wouldn't stand up in a court of law. Ooh, well actually, maybe it would. 
when everyone knew that the king was right behind a guilty verdict, was probably a dead cert. Because Henry had slipped into outrageous monster mode with just a casual flip of the switch. With his bastard son Richmond, he wept with joy that they'd been saved from a woman who was surely planning to poison them all. And to Cromwell, he declared that Anne had had more than a hundred lovers. And meanwhile, he'd moved on already and was in hot pursuit of Miss Seymour. How could he do it? How could he do it? Well, we'll leave that for Claire, the debate and the shedcast. But someone at the time remarked that they'd never seen anyone wear a cockold's horns as easily as Henry did. And actually therein probably lies the reason for Henry's cold-hearted pursuit of Jane, to prove that he still had it in him. Just one person spoke up for Anne, and that was Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop. It's easy to accuse Cranmer of cowardice because of his innate reasonableness. After all, he is there at the birth of the Anglican Church, the Middle Way. And the letter he wrote to the king has been criticised for being equivocal. But look, it was a darn sight braver than anything anyone else did. I am clean amazed, for I had never better opinion of woman, he wrote. He did also write, I am sorry such faults can be proved against the queen as they report. Which might be seen as that equivocal thing. It might also be seen as a rather clever stiletto. The can you prove it? Can you, Henry? Can you? sort of thing. Whether put up to it or not, whether the accusations against Anne were true or not, Cromwell was a clever chap. He put the blokes on trial first, because once they were convicted, Anne would be a pushover. She had effectively already had been convicted. Now, it just so happens that a commission of Oye and Termine had already been set up to investigate incidents of treason before the accusations of Anne had come to light. Now, how spooky is that? Gosh, hey, look at that. That's really handy. We can use that commission to execute, I mean, try all the four accused commoners. In this, people have seen the hand of Cromwell planning for what was about to follow. There's no need, really. It was a pretty standard process and had been mooted for some time, though it did mean an element of social awkwardness as a result, since Thomas Boleyn was a member of the commission and therefore involved in trying the lovers of his daughters and knowing that in finding them guilty, he was in all likelihood thereby also condemning his own flesh and blood, his own daughter. Thomas Boleyn is pretty much invisible after that, actually, in all that follows. There's no record of him shouting and screaming up and down the corridors of fighting might and main to save his daughter's life. Maybe it's a matter that no one bothered to record it. Maybe he thought the case was hopeless. But we do apparently know of Francis Weston's family fighting for their boy, Anyway, who am I to judge? But Claire Ridgway on the Anne Boleyn files again has a great quote from Anne's biographer, Paul Friedman. Anne's friends were closely watched, but it was not thought necessary to interfere with the liberty of Lord Wiltshire. He was a mean, egotist and coward, and from motives of prudence had always disapproved of his daughter's bold and violent courses. There was, therefore, no reason to fear that he would try to defend her. Golly! Paul Friedman was happy enough to judge then. The case against all four of the commoners accused of having sex with Anne was also pretty flimsy. Now, these four were, of course, Weston, Norris, Brereton and Smeaton. As one of the judges recorded, the evidence was all tittle-tattle, crudity and innuendo. We might think that accusing George and Anne of incest, for example, the mention of kissing with tongues, was a step too far. 
But the very fact that it was so horrifying led people to think that here was a woman without any saving grace who could do and stop at nothing. And most of the public were probably willing to believe it. Here was the woman who had defied convention, ripped the king away from the rightful queen they loved. So it's Westminster Hall, 12th of May, in front of the commission of I.E. and Termine, Smeaton pleaded guilty, Weston, Norris, Brereton, the others, not guilty, all a complete waste of time. The verdict was guilty. Three days later, on Monday the 15th of May, the noble accused, the two Boleyns, George and Anne, were to be tried. The venue was the King's Hall in the Tower. The jury is assembled, the panel of peers are there to deliver sentence, the panel of judges there to advise. The bleachers are there to support 2,000 eager spectators. You don't get to see the trial of a queen and her incestuous brother every day after all. The Duke of Norfolk was presiding over the court, 26 peers as the jury, bank of judges again. Anne was first, pleading not guilty of course. Under the interrogation, she made so wise and discreet answers to all things laid against her, excusing herself with words so clearly as though she had never been faulty to the same. Utterly irrelevant, of course. All pronounced her guilty. Norfolk pronounced judgment, weeping as he did so. There are two interpretations as to these tears. One says that he was weeping because he had to condemn his niece to death. You know, the human assumption. The other, actually, is that he was sick of a queen who'd proved a good deal less controllable as he'd hoped and who'd usurped his own position of power and that these were therefore tears of joy and relief. I leave it to you to decide. Anne apparently spoke at the end of the trial. I forgot to get Izzy to read this one, sorry about that. I do not say that I have always borne towards the king the humility which I owed him, considering his kindness and the great honour he showed me and the great respect he always paid me. I admit too often that I have taken it into my head to be jealous of him, but may God be my witness if I have done him any other wrong. If these are Anne's words and you can judge whether or not they ring true, they are impressively self-aware, are they not? And they tie in absolutely with the story painted by Chapuis of a volatile, emotional, real and passionate relationship. They accord with the view that here is someone who will not be forced into the traditional box, who cannot deny their own nature, however much trouble it might get them into. Not even Chapuis, delighted though he was with Anne's fall, thought much of the evidence presented. Anne then also spoke with regret that other innocent men were to die because of her. Then she was taken away. Her brother George put up an even better fight. There was even a book being run which suggested he was going to get off. He was defiant and convincing. So that would be a guilty verdict then. In one way, George did manage a small victory. He stood accused of repeating accusations that Henry was rubbish in the sack and he was given a text to read silently to confirm whether or not he recognised it. Against specific orders, he read them out, to general delight, I suspect. The king is not able to satisfy a woman, and he has neither capacity nor virility. Now, to the Tudor mind, once condemned it was time to stop mathering and prepare yourself for death. Small chance of that, I suspect, for Anne. Anne still had plenty to worry about and plenty to hope for, and hope, of course, is the enemy of acceptance. Would she be burned or would she be beheaded? She might still hope against hope for a reprieve. She was a queen after all. While she waited, 
Henry had Cranmer carry out the legally bizarre move to annul the marriage, which actually removed the basis for the treason charge. While she was waiting also, her co-defendants went to their deaths on Tower Hill on the morning of the 17th of May 1536. All of them had been given the not inconsiderable mercy of beheading rather than all that hanging, de-entrailing, degenitalization, and dismemberment. Death speeches, by and large, were supposed to be very standard. Basically, you praised the king to the skies, admitted everything, otherwise your family got it. They all appeared to die well. Rochford confessed to being a sinner in general, but very clearly said nothing at all about being guilty of bonking his own sister, and not admitting to your crimes on the gallows was considered pretty radical. Smeaton was the most wobbly. Masters, I pray you all, pray for me, for I have deserved death. You might note that this phrase is open to interpretation. Why exactly did he deserve death? For having had sex with the Queen, or for giving false evidence? Norris said almost nothing. Maybe he was thinking, I've been wiping the King's backside for eight years, the ex can't come quickly enough for me, though I'm reasonably sure he didn't actually say that. Francis Weston was reasonably interesting. I had thought to have lived in abomination these 20 or 30 years, and then to have made amends. Essentially, I thought I had years of singing before I had to stop and repent of them. It's a good point. Brereton actually probably came closest to denying that he was guilty, but they all died. Which leaves us with Anne. She had an agonising two days to wait. Probably this was because the king had ordered a specially good executioner from France. But for Anne, it was of course agonising until she heard that she was not going to be burnt. From two o'clock on the morning of her execution, she was preparing her soul with her almoner, John Skip, in expectation of a dawn event. In front of Kingston, she took mass, swore she was innocent of all the charges. And yet the time did not come, did not come, did not come. Eventually, she called Kingston. She had prepared. She was ready to die. The waiting was killing her. Master Kingston, I hear I shall not die before noon, and I am very sorry, therefore, for I thought to be dead by this time, and past my pain. The execution will not be painful. The blow is so subtle. I heard the executioner was very good, and I have a little neck. It's a remarkably dumb response from Kingston about the pain thing, is it not? And I like Susan Bordeaux's explanation of Anne's comments as dripping with ironic humour rather than hysteria. When the time finally came, she walked to the gallows, constantly looking behind her. Maybe even now she hoped for a reprieve, that Henry would hop out from behind a pillar and say it had all been a joke. But she didn't have worried. Henry was on a barge with his new girl, preparing for a wedding the following day. The following day. Would you believe it? Think back to those love letters of his. Good Lord. Anne spoke at the gallows, and you can see the various versions at the Anne Boleyn Files site but the most widely accepted was this, spoken apparently with a goodly smiling countenance. By the law I am judged to die, and thereof I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak of that whereof I am accused and condemned to die. But I pray God save the king and send him long to reign over you, for a gentler and nor a more merciful prince was there never, and to me he was ever a good, a gentle and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world and of you all, and I heartily desire you all to pray for me. There was no confession of guilt. Equally, there was no confession she had wronged Henry. 
bald to the end. She lifted off her headdress to expose her neck and tucked her hair into her cap. She said goodbye to her servants. She was worried that the executioner would strike before she was ready and she agreed a sign with him. She kneeled, prayed, gave the sign and continued to pray, looking round nervously for the sword. Most representations I've seen of this have her kneeling upright. The executioner pretended to ask for the sword from the opposite side. Then as she turned her head towards that side, he whipped the sword from under some straw and it was done before her lips could stop moving. Her corpse was placed in an old arrow chest and removed into the chapel of St Peter ad Vincula, there to be buried. Well, there we are. I am exhausted and possibly given the length of the recent episodes, so are you. I shall be brief then. Claire's podcast will be out on Wednesday and will be excellent. For members, you have a podcast now and a poll to attend to on the website. Thank you all very much for listening, and I look forward to speaking to you again next Sunday for the great scandal of Christendom debate. There will be my podcast putting the arguments around our debating question. On the History of England's Facebook page, the one with the heron, there will be a post whereon you can then comment and place your vote for the motion, against the motion, or you can abstain. More instructions next week. Now I'm going to lie down with a wet towel on my head and a piece of lardy cake. Until next week, live long and prosper. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.